Dear Lord, we come to this um, difficult discussion on divorce and about oaths and promises. Most of all, Lord, may we see what you have to teach us, Jesus. What you have to teach us about marriage. And that we might see it and believe it and receive it for our own well-being and our relationships. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 19, actually. So this is, uh, Matthew 19, is, it's an expansion where Jesus is explaining and elaborating his teaching that he gives in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, please open to Matthew chapter 19. And there's always questions about divorce, specific questions. And the Pharisees come to talk to Jesus and they ask him a very specific question. Matthew 19, verse 3, this is their question. They say, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This is their question. Any reason? See, there was an an attractive rabbinical teaching at the time that was an interpretation or a misinterpretation of Deuteronomy 24 that basically said that a a man can divorce his his wife for any reason. So any reason being... um, uh, bad cooking could be some. They gained weight. There's no longer passion in the marriage. Is that a reason? They're asking. This is a, a question that we have, and in some ways, this is a contemporary question on the approach that we have about marriage. That it's this view in their question that marriage is here primarily to satisfy my own needs. The cooking's bad. That doesn't satisfy me. This is the question. And the thing that we see that the Pharisees are are coming from in this is a a consumeristic view on what marriage is. It's It's a common view that we have. It's a view that basically says, look, you provide goods and services for me, and if they don't satisfy, I will take my membership somewhere else. Sam's Club isn't as good as Costco, so I'm going to go over to Costco. I'm going to get a new membership. This is basically the way that they are talking about marriage. So the question that we may ask, that you could re-ask the Pharisees' question, is this. It seems like it's not working. I'm not satisfied in this marriage. I would like to cancel my membership in it when our children maybe are older. Can we do that? And this is the question. I think you see here fundamentally that the Pharisees, and even the way modern America that we approach marriage... That the view of divorce is a symptom of a disease understanding of marriage. And so Jesus understands this. And when they ask him about divorce, Jesus responds with explaining marriage first. And so that's what we're going to spend most of our time on, is looking at what does Jesus describe as the essence of marriage. Okay? So if you see, they ask him the question, and and he explains the essence of marriage in verses 5 and 6. They ask him, is it lawful to divorce anyone's wife, a wife for any cause? Verse 4, he answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. If you notice in this passage right here when Jesus is describing what marriage is, He reiterates it three times. He says, 
First, that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife. Then he restates it again. The very next clause, he says, so now the two are now one. And then he restates it again and says, they are not two, but one. And what Jesus is describing here is that marriage is a covenantal union. It is a covenantal union. You see here, he is saying they are not two, but one. That there is a union. There is something new. Jesus is reiterating that marriage is a union. That it is a union of body. It is a union of spirit, as Malachi 2 explains. It is a union of our purposes. There is a union of our emotional support. There is a union of goals. There is union. And in that union, there is an individuation from your family, from your parents, into a new relationship. It's a total union. And we may sometimes respond, not two, but one. Um, Does that destroy my own unique personhood? The way that Jesus is talking about it? Does it destroy my personhood? I would say here what we're seeing when Jesus described it, he's not saying that your personhood, that your uniqueness is destroyed, but rather that your independence you're not an independent person now. You, you have uniqueness. You have personhood. But you are not an independent being. You are one with your spouse. We can speak in a limited way. This is an analogy of the Trinity. The Father is a unique person. Jesus, the Son, is a unique person. But they are both one. And in this way we can see, if this is the, na- the nature of reality, that, that, that God is three in one, that he is, there's individu- there, they are individual in their personhood, and yet they are one, we see for us that there is, you are distinct in your personhood, and yet you are one. This doesn't mean that my wife, Matheson, all of a sudden starts to like maps uh, a lot. It just means that we have a uniqueness. We have together this oneness, a body, spirit, purpose, oneness. And this is important in a healthy marriage to understand this reality. This is an important thing for us in understanding our identity. But this is also significant because it creates, helps us understand the way new family dynamics are supposed to work in a marriage and even sets priorities and orders in uh, obligations and understanding this union. You see it when he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and join to his wife. It creates new priorities. Some of you may have had this experience where you're on a plane in Dallas and you're flying to El Paso and the flight attendants say, in the event of a water, an emergency water landing. And you're like, what on earth? We're crossing a desert. There's no possibility of an emergency water landing. But you know what they say, in case there's a, an emergency landing and the oxygen masks fall down, fix your own oxygen mask and then 
you do your children. Because what happens if you don't? You're going to fall unconscious, and in the event of trying to put your child's oxygen mask on, uh, it's going to come off, and they're not going to, yours is going to come off, theirs is going to come off, everybody's is going to fall off. You see, what they are saying there, what I'm saying is, look, the spouse is your own body. You are one body. And even with the command to honor our parents and the demands of raising children, these claims of your spouse, the needs of your marriage relationship, this body, these priorities are, are, are before and prior to our, our obligations to parents and our obligations to children. Because when we neglect this union, this is when we are unable to put the oxygen on our children or on our parents as well. We understand that the stress of family dynamics and responsibilities can be very, very great. I mean, in El Paso, you may be expected to attend your aunt's, cousin's, kid's second birthday party. You have lots of responsibilities. And it's oftentimes hard to understand, how do, we nav- how do I navigate my responsibilities to my parents to honor them, to care for my children, and all of these responsibilities, and it can become so burdensome. And part of wisdom is to understand the set of orders and priorities that you have to secure the oxygen mask of your marriage, of your one body union, so that, in, that you can be able take care of the responsibilities to your other family members. I knew uh, a woman and a man who were married, but whenever there was conflict, whenever there was issues in their marriage, her emotional support had always gone back to her mother. So whenever there was any problems, she went running to her mother about it. And their marriage ended quickly in divorce. Because there's a, a fundamental reality that Jesus is talking about that, that there is a union between a man and a woman in which you leave your family and you are united body and soul and purpose to your spouse. Jesus also uh, says it's a union, but it is a covenantal union. Verse 5 in the ESV says, Hold fast. The old King James would say it in the same way, but it said, Cleave. A man shall leave his wife and cleave to his, uh, leave his family and, and cleave to his wife. This word cleave is just the simple idea of uniting. But if, uh, uh, if you read the meaning of marriage, there's a chapter called The Essence of Marriage. And in, in that, it describes this word. And you look at it as it's used in the Bible. It says this. Elsewhere in the, wor- in the Bible, the word cleave or hold fast, it means to unite to someone through a covenant, a binding promise, or an oath. And so Deuteronomy 10 says this. Uh, For the Lord your God, fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Cleave to Him and take your oaths in His name. There are other references. But what this is getting at is there's an idea that marriage is a covenant. It is a covenant union where you are making oaths, you are making promises. You make a vow to God and you take an oath to another person. 
You're promising. You're making a promise. And this, in this, you, you are entering a covenantal union. I think this is the context in which we really understand Jesus' teaching on oaths as well. He says on the passage on oaths, he says, let your yes be yes and your no a no. You see, when you go down the aisle, when you have your wedding and you make a simple I do, that is the most fundamental yes of an oath, of a vow. And the reason that Jesus is against saying all these, adding all these extra words into oaths and vows is because you don't need anything else besides that because God is present in a simple I do. He is there witnessing to the vow that you make. And so you don't need to say anything else besides I do, besides a yes. Anything beyond that is superfluous. Because He is there and He is present in the simple yes of I do. You see, He is witnessing to your binding promise that you make to Him and to your spouse. And so we see that wedding ceremonies, they're not just, they're not just kicks and giggles. They're not for just a, a fun event. They are oath-taking, covenant-making ceremonies. So even when you sign that paper at the court before a lawful authority, when you come down the aisle and you say, and the the minister asks you those words of intent, when they are speaking then on behalf of God, and they say to the man, will you have this woman to be your wife? And you respond saying, I do. It's not just you're just talking to the minister. This is a vow that you are making to God. And then when you look at the other person and you say to them your, your oaths, your vows, when you look at each other and you say, I take you to be my lawful and wedded husband and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful wife in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health as long as we both shall live. You are making a vow to the other person that God is witnessing to. And so one implication in these vows that come from this covenantal union, in these vows you are promising to serve your spouse no matter what rather than seeking our own happiness. In these vows that you make in this union, it is a promise to serve the other person that you are married to. It is saying, I am responsible for this promise that I make. I am responsible to give 100% even when they cannot for various reasons. I am responsible. And this sounds sometimes to people dangerous that we might be taken advantage of by your spouse. And I think the rebuttal is that this is where Jesus talks about the importance of being equally yoked in marriage on one level because if you are in a Christian marriage, you should understand this. And especially men, as uh, in Ephesians 5, Paul talks about how this is a mystery. This union, this covenant union is a mystery which refers to Christ and the church. And so men are respond, responsible for sacrificing like Christ does. 
But the point is to say, recognize that when you take these vows, when you say your I do, when you say your yes, it is a promise to serve the person no matter what. I say all of these things and yet I recognize that I'm actually married to somebody who does it much better than I do. She practices the very things that I preach. She's the one oftentimes who lives sacrificially in our marriage, even in the smallest of ways. Um, I think oftentimes, this is small, but we'll sit down for dinner. And by that time, we're super, I'm super hungry. And Matheson has, has slaved over a, a, a meal that she's worked really hard. In it. And we pray and we sit down and then I see all of this food there. And the very first thing that I do almost all the time is I grab the food. I start piling it on my plate. And we have our food. And I eat all of my food up while it's still hot. And I, sit, and I sit back and I look at it after having eaten my dinner and I say, wow, that was great lentils. I mean, it was lentils, but it was great. And I ate the whole thing. And then I look over and I see that my, that my wife has not even touched her food because she's serving my children. And she's serving me by serving my children. And I struggle with this, even though this is a small thing in many ways. But I struggle with it every day. And you see, my wife puts into practice the principle from Philippians 2.4 that says this, Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is especially true in marriage. And what he's talking about. And here's the paradox, I think, about serving. In the meaning of marriage, um, Tim and Kathy Keller say this. If you seek to serve one another rather than to be happy, you will find a new and deeper happiness. You see, there is, there is in, the, in the long haul of it, there is a deeper happiness, a deeper fulfillment that comes when you understand that marriage is about you serving the other person. Because one, you will find satisfaction in your serving, but also in that way, a marriage becomes a healthy thing. Understanding that it is a covenant. But you should know that this is on the far shores of of sustained sacrificial service. It's not you just go and you did something nice and now you expect that it's going to be all better. This is an understanding that marriage is a covenant in which you are called to serve the other person. This is understanding this will help you get through the stormy waters. Implication two, I think. When we understand that marriage is a covenantal union, this helps us understand that the person that you married to is your soulmate. I mean, we, we, we balk at the term soulmate oftentimes, but, but we could say the person in a covenantal union, the person that you are married to is the one for you. Well, oftentimes we may get the question, how do I know that I'm marrying the right person? Did I miss out on marrying the right person? And what I want you to hear is what Jesus says here, what God has joined together. You see, when you sign that marriage certificate, when you make your vows, you are saying, this person is the right person. 
Those vows and those promises make them the right person. God is a witness in that saying, I joined you together. This one, this one is the one for you. That's what He is saying here. We know the idea of of soulmate is insane in a lot of ways. Um, I was watching this Netflix show called uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. And if you have seen that, it's a a show about Jerry uh, Seinfeld, who is a comedian, who takes another comedian in a car with him to go grab coffee. And they talk about things. So one of these conversations that Jerry Seinfeld was having was with Aziz Ansari. And Aziz Ansari is a different, another comedian. And, and they're talking about marriage, actually. And they say this, Aziz says this, My parents had an arranged marriage. My dad met my mom, and then a week later, they were married. Nuts, I know. And Jerry Seinfeld responds, he says, I don't know, maybe that's not so nuts. And then Aziz responds back and he says this, You know, I kind of agree with you actually. Because the more I think about it, the more I thought about it, it's viewing marriage as a different thing. I want to pause Netflix and just talk to Aziz Ansari and say, You're right. It is a different view. It's the idea that marriage is actually a commitment. It's a covenant. He goes on and he says this. Aziz says this. But now marriage has become this thing of like, I've got to find my soulmate. I've got to find this perfect person that makes me feel this amazing feeling that brings out an amazing light inside of me that's on all of the time. And he says, that actually sounds insane. Thinking to, you, to think that that person is there and that you've got to find them. That theme, that seems like a crazy journey to go on. And Jerry Seinfeld just laughs and says, huh, that's funny. You see, this idea that there is a soulmate out there, it's an insane idea. It's absolutely ridiculous. But it's also dangerous. To think that there might be somebody else who is the one out there for you. It's a dangerous idea because what happens? Oftentimes it ends up being there is a specific someone else that you think they're the one who I should have been married to. They're the one. And that idea is a sneaky fox that would destroy the garden of your marriage. And it sneaks in all the more when things are difficult and you start questioning, did I marry the right person? But I want to tell you to shoot that fox and shoot it again and shoot it again. And I'll tell you that your marriage vows, your understanding that marriage is a covenant, it is an accurate gun to shoot that fox. Because it tells you, God has joined you together. This one is the one that God has planned for you. This is what God is saying. This is what Jesus is saying. Now with that, understanding this, that marriage is a covenantal union in which you are called to serve and sacrifice for this other person, that God is joining you, This is the context in when Jesus describes understanding when divorce can be acceptable. We have to understand it in this context. And so now we think about how divorce can be a concession. If you look in verse uh, 7, Jesus has just explained this. And this is a a very high view of marriage that he's describing. In verse 7, the Pharisees respond. And they say this, 
They said to him, Well, if that's the case, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus responds. In verse 8, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives from the beginning. But from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus is responding. They say, you see, Moses had commanded it. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Because of your hardness of sin, God, Moses, allows it. On occasion, he permits it. But it was never the way it was intended to be from the beginning. See, if we were to say that divorce is a command, we would be saying this is God's desire. And God, divorce is not the desire of God, even as he permits it. This is not something that he delights in. In fact, as Malachi 2 says, he hates it. Describes that he hates it. But it is a a concession. It is a concession which even though he does not delight in, on occasion he allows. On occasion. But here's the point, is that it could never be more than a concession. Because if you think about the way Jesus has just been describing it, it is a union. And, and in divorce, it is a tearing apart of your very self. It is a ripping apart of your soul in a way. How can that be anything more than a concession? Even as He allows it. Because we know that divorce is probably oftentimes stated the second most stressful event that a person could experience. And it is second to the death of a loved one. Why? Why? Because it is a death in a way. It is a, it is a death and it is a, it is a death a part of you. And it is a tearing a part of, inside of you. The Avid brothers in one of their songs called Divorce Separation Blues put it this way. He said, well, now I'm bound to break a promise, one that I made to God and to you. I've got the tough education, no celebration, bad communication, worse interpretation, love deprivation, pain allocation, soul devastation, cold desolation, life complication, resuscitation, divorce, separation, blues. Even if it's necessary... It is love deprivation, pain allocation, soul devastation, cold desolation. And it is something that we lament about, even as it may need to happen on occasion. Here's to the point. Tim Keller and uh, and The Meaning of Marriage, him and his wife said this. Divorce should not be easy. It should not be our first, second, third, or fourth resort. And yet, Jesus knows the depth of human sin and he holds out hope for those who find themselves married to someone with an intractably hard heart who has broken his or her vows. You see, the grounds for divorce, as he describes them, it is essentially, it is being married to someone with an intractably hard heart who has broken his or her vows. Let me say that again. It is being married to someone with an intractably hard heart who has broken his or her vows. 
Specifically, Jesus describes it in the case of adultery. Because what is adultery? Adultery is breaking your vows. It is adding somebody else into that one flesh union. It is joining to another person and so it breaks that covenant bond such that the person who is sinned against is free to go. This is the context actually that Jesus is referring back to in Deuteronomy 24. It's as if a man finds something indecent in his spouse. It's this idea, this shameful nakedness. It's the principle of of adultery, of, of sexual immorality. It's what Joseph and Mary do. It's what Joseph thinks has happened with his with his uh, with Mary when he wants to divorce her quietly because he thinks that he has found in her adultery. And so this is hard. But in such a case, a person has committed, uh, their, broken their vows. And if they are intractably hard in their heart, Jesus says, divorce may be the concession. One other thing that is described in the scripture is, is oftentimes called willful desertion. 1 Corinthians uh, 7, 15 and 16, Paul describes a scenario when an unbelieving spouse leaves their family. They are breaking their vows. They have broken their vows. They have abandoned their family. And in that case, because they have broken their vows so thoroughly, an intractably hard-hearted person who has broken their vows. The thing is, Jesus, he, he just says adultery, but, but you think about it, these two, willful, adir- uh, 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 willful desertion and adultery, they go hand in hand oftentimes. I know a story of a, of a wife who moved with her husband across to the east, uh, from the east coast to the west coast. And she put her husband through PhD school. And they moved to Texas. And not long after they moved to Texas, he threw her out with their nine-year-old kid and their four-year-old child as well. Threw them out, and he threw out his faith as well, and he ran into the arms of another woman. See, this man had deserted his family, but he also then went and committed adultery on his wife. These things oftentimes go hand in hand. And I want to say this one more thing about about this. Two clarifications. One is this, is that adultery is a concession, but it is not a demand for divorce. Just because your spouse has committed adultery on you, it does not mean that you must get divorced. Oftentimes, yes, adultery may be a mortal wound to your relationship, but you can consider if they repent and if you are willing to take them back. Because is this not what Christ has done for us? That as we have committed adultery upon Him, yet He takes us back. And so, taking wisdom, seeking godly counsel and uh, from pastors and from others, it is something to consider. 
Another clarification is this. About, and I feel like I need to say this, is about domestic abuse. Statistically, we know that one in three women and one in four men are abused. We know this is less common in marriage, but we do know that it still happens. Do not think that if you have been abused or being abused by your spouse, that this means that you are supposed to suffer in silence. That person is breaking their vows. And if that is happening, then you need to speak to Manuel or me, to the elders, and talk about it. And if that person continues and that person does not repent, in which case... It is possible. At least separation is, would be necessary, potentially divorce, because that person has stomping upon their covenant vows. And it must be dealt with. Okay. And I know this is a hard thing for us to hear and to talk about. And as Jesus' disciples are, are encountering Jesus talking about this whole discussion, they say uh, in verse... Uh, um, 10. Look, look, the disciples say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to get married. You see, they say, this is such a high standard. Jesus, it would be better for us just to stay single. And Jesus responds in a, in a strange way, almost in verse 12. He says, look, this is a hard saying. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have made who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But the one who is able to receive this, receive this. This is a strange thing that Jesus is talking about here. What do we make of it? We're we talking about eunuchs for Christ? What, what does that even mean? You know, there were early, um, early church people one guy named Origen in particular who took this uh, idea very literally and he actually castrated himself. I'm telling you, that's not what Jesus is talking about right here. But he is saying that singleness or singleness for the purpose of God's kingdom is a legitimate option. Even as we've been talking about how important and how incredible marriage is, this covenantal union, yet at the same time, he's saying singleness is a good thing. And for all of us, this is saying that this is a a call for us to find contentment and joy in Christ and in His kingdom. Think about Jesus Himself. He found complete satisfaction in His Father and, and with His close friends. And we are, as Christians, renewed in the image of someone who never married. That's our Savior. And because of that, we can, in Him, find our contentment and joy in whatever station in life we find ourselves. And here's the thing to know, is that in this call to to find contentment and joy in Christ, it is a reminder that no matter what your particular situation is, if you're married, divorced, single, potentially for the rest of your life, is to understand this, that no mere human can ever satisfy our thirst for intimacy, belonging, and love. No human could ever provide this need that we have. 
You know in John chapter 4 how Jesus met a woman at a well in the middle of the day. She went there because it was hot. She went there to avoid being seen. She was ashamed and she was embarrassed of what her life had become. And in the middle of the noonday heat, Jesus said to her in John 4, 14, Everyone who drinks of this well water, this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then he gets really personal with her. And he says, I know your history. I know your story. I know that you've had five husbands. I know that now you are living with a man who you are not married to. You cannot hide it from God. He knows. Jesus knows our history. Jesus knows what you've been through. And yet, I want you to know this, that whatever your situation is, that He is not ashamed to talk to you. He knows it, and His words have spiritual meaning with them. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, the sweet water of marital relational intimacy, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this woman, she leaves behind her empty jar and she runs to town to bring people to her Savior. So you see, marriage marriage is a gift that has been given to many. But it cannot satisfy our deepest longings. It was not meant to. Only Christ, only He Himself can satisfy us. And He will give us Himself as we come to Him. So let us pray. Lord, we pray that as you say, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And most of all, Lord, we are asking to receive you and to delight in you. Whether we're married, whether we've been divorced, whether we are single. Lord, may we delight in you and we know that you will give us the desires of our heart. The desires of intimacy, belonging, and love. And may we delight in you and find in you, therefore, the source of our deepest satisfaction. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.